Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Thank you for spending part of your day with us. Today, we have a moment of prophecy with Rob Lindstead, and we wrap up the series Jewish Roots of Christianity with Larry Stamm. Studio 50, our project to raise the needed funds to completely update our recording studio with new equipment and software, is now at 80% of our goal. We're almost there because of your generous support. Would you please help today with a gift? Call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. And show your support for Watchmen on the Wall and our Studio 50 project. You can also show your support by giving online at swrc.com. Thank you for your prayers and support of your Watchmen on the Wall. Over the last several months, author and teacher Larry Stamm has been examining the Jewish roots of Christianity. If you're able, grab your Bibles and let's join Larry Stamm for the final installment of the Jewish Roots of Christianity. Shalom, friends. Larry Stamm here. So glad you're joining us for this study in the Jewish Roots of Christianity. We are concluding a biblical survey on God's redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation. Today, we close our study with New Testament applications, examining the Jewish context of Jesus and the feasts in the New Testament. Whenever we think about Bible study and Bible interpretation, we think about text context. And I want you to think about it in this way as we close our time together in this study of the Jewish roots of Christianity. The text of the New Testament was penned through the context of the Old Testament. And I begin our time as I began our first session when we began this brief survey of the Jewish roots of Christianity with this catchphrase, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. If we want to understand one, we have to study the other. This is the whole counsel of God, friends. And so many times in the New Testament, you will see this phrase, it is written. Or you will hear this phrase communicated according to the scriptures. So we need to understand the text of the New Testament, the context for the Brit Chadashah, the New Covenant or New Testament scriptures, is the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish Bible, better known to us as Christians as the Old Testament. I want to start our time by talking about the feasts of Israel as they relate to Jesus and our study of the New Covenant text, the New Testament. First of all, let's talk about Jesus and Passover. The Passion Week is in the context of Passover. As you well know, if you know the Lord Jesus, the Lord is crucified on Passover and resurrects on the Jewish Feast of First Fruits. And there are several passages that take place during the Passion Week, beginning at the triumphal entry and running through Passover and first fruits with the resurrection of Jesus. For example, we see Matthew chapter 21. There is a section on the triumphal entry, and you see the crucifixion and resurrection in Matthew chapter 26 through 28. Mark, there's a significant section 
There's a number of verses in Mark 11 also in context of Passover. Mark 14, 12 through 16, 11 is also in the context of Passover. Luke 22, verses 1 through 24 are also in the context of Passover. And finally, and in many ways, very importantly, you see the Gospel of John has actually the most information in the context of Passover of the four Gospels. For example, there's a few verses in John 12, but from John chapter 13, verse 1, through John chapter 20, verse 18, all of that information in that Gospel, seven plus chapters, is in the context of Passover. That's really powerful if you think about it, and really important. So when we think text, think context. And the text in the Gospels, especially during the crucifixion and the trial of Jesus, is in the context of Passover. And we remember God instituted the biblical Passover in Exodus 12. We talked about John chapter 1, verse 29, where Yochanan, the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, looked at the Lord and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus in Passover, there's a lot of information in the Gospels that we find in context of the Feast of Passover. Next, I want to talk briefly about Jesus and the Feast of Booths. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to John chapter 7 and 8. Here we see Jesus actually teaching during the Feast of Tabernacles. We talked about the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths a celebration of God's faithfulness, provision, and protection during the 40-year wilderness wandering of the Israelites. God commanded the Israelites to both build and to live in temporary huts one week each year. And during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, we see Jesus actually teaching. In verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 7, we read, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because... The Jews sought to kill him. Verse 2 of John chapter 7, Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And then we would go back, and if you were reading the New Testament, if you were doing Bible study, you would go, okay, what is the Feast of Tabernacles? Why is Jesus there? Why are the Jewish people there? And you would go back to Leviticus 23, and you would study it out. And then we find in John chapter 7, again, Jesus teaching and saying things about himself. In verses 37 through 39 of John chapter 7, Jesus says, In the last day, the last day of the seven-day feast of tabernacles or booths, in the last day of that feast, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This is significant. The great day of the feast in Hebrew was called Hashanah Rabbah, the great day of rejoicing. Remember, Israel at the time was an agrarian economy, very much focused on the need for God to provide rain. But interestingly, God blessed Israel with physical rain that was necessary for the harvest. And Jesus, remember, in John chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman earlier had said, I have living water that you know not of. People can drink of physical water. They'll get thirsty again, but they drink of the water that I have for them. Streams of living water will flow from within him. He reiterates that point here as he's teaching during the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple. And the symbol of water also was a picture of God's blessing, but it was also a symbol of God's presence. Think about this. 
also contextually in this John chapter 7 passage, in the first century, there was a tradition that was not in Leviticus 23 in the original institution of the feast, but was now very prominent in the first century. It was called the water pouring ceremony, and the priests would take these large cisterns and they would march from the pool of Siloam up to the Temple Mount to the altar, and they would pour water down on the altar, praising and thanking God for his provision, but also rejoicing in the very presence of God in this symbol of water. And the living water in the Old Testament, God sometimes refers to himself as living water. And Jesus here talking about the significance of the water. So there's a little bit of the context for this water pouring ceremony and Jesus talking about the living water in context of the Feast of Tabernacles. Also, traditionally, you may not be aware, but there was in the time of Christ at the temple, four giant candelabras in the court of the women at the temple. And these candelabras were massive. The Jewish oral law, the Talmud tells us they were 75 feet tall. And when these candelabras were lit during the Feast of Tabernacles, the night sky in Jerusalem was illumined. In fact, the Talmud says that when these candelabras were lit at the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles, Jerusalem was illumined like it was the day. Now, with that tradition in mind, think about Jesus' words now in John chapter 8, verse 12, very familiar to us as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know for sure because the gospel of John doesn't explicitly tell us in John chapter 8, but it may very well have been that Jesus uttered these words while standing next to these giant candelabras during the Feast of Tabernacles when there was also an illumination of the temple ceremony during the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember in John chapter 8, verse 12, Just picture in your mind perhaps Jesus standing right next to these four giant candelabras. John 8, verse 12, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Friends, Jesus, the light of the world, proclaiming he to be the light that is the light of men. And you remember in John chapter 1, John talked about the light in this way. He said, in him, a reference to the Messiah. He's giving testimony now about Jesus. He said, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And then in verse 7, those came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of the light, a reference to Jesus, John the Baptist, bearing witness to the true light, Jesus. Verse 9 of John 1, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The whole concept of light is important in context of the Feast of Tabernacles, the illumination of the temple ceremony, and certainly the light of the world, Jesus, and his revelation of the light of truth that gives life to men. So there's a little bit about Jesus and the Feast of Booths in John chapter 7 and 8. I encourage you to study it out on your own. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Did you know that? If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 10, verse 22. The Feast of Dedication during Hanukkah, or as we like to say in Jewish, Hanukkah. 
Hanukkah is the Feast of Dedication. John 10.22, the Word of God says, And it was at Jerusalem during the Feast of Dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, and then the narrative goes on to talk about him witnessing to the Jewish people present at the temple in Solomon's portico during the Feast of Dedication. Literally, Hanukkah in Hebrew literally means in English, dedication. It was also known as the Festival of Lights, Hanukkah, an eight-day Jewish holiday commemorating the Jewish military victory by the Maccabees over the army of the wicked Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes. And when they achieved that victory, they rededicated the Holy Temple in Jerusalem at the time of the Maccabean Revolt at about 165 B.C. is when that occurred. 168 B.C., Antiochus sacrificed a pig on the Holy Altar. He erected a 75-foot-tall statue of himself and demanded they worship him as God. The Jews loyal to the God of Israel said, no, we will not. And the Maccabees rebelled against Antiochus and overwhelmed his army. In fact, one of the miracles of Hanukkah in 165 B.C. is the Maccabean army was an army of about 3,000, and it defeated the Syrian army of Antiochus Epiphanes, numbering 47,000 or thereabouts. That was a miracle. And then the miracle of the light, you've heard of that. The miracle of the light is the fact that the temple needed to be lit by what was called the Ner Tami, the eternal light, for eight days during the ceremonial cleansing of the temple. Apparently, there was only enough oil for one day to light that Ner Tami, that eternal light. But the legend of the light is that the oil lasted for eight days. Do we know that for sure? No. But that is the legend of the light. And that's where we get Hanukkah known also, not only as the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah meaning dedication, but also as the Festival of Light. So if you're wondering if Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, friends, yes, he did. And then finally, I want to talk briefly about the Feast of Weeks. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. God doing a new thing. The disciples, Jewish people, had gone to the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, Shavuot, during their lives. It was one of three festivals God commanded Jewish men to make Aliyah. They were commanded to go to Jerusalem to worship, not only during the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot in Hebrew, better known to us as Pentecost, but the other two feasts were the Feast of Tabernacles. That's why Jesus was teaching during the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7 and 8, but also Passover. So there at the Feast of Shavuot in Acts chapter 2, and God does a new thing. Remember we talked about the new covenant economy when the Spirit would indwell every believer, and that's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's Acts 2 verses 2 through 4, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord. And I had read the following verses for you just now. God does a new thing. He did something during this particular feast of weeks that he had never done before. The Spirit falls. The disciples are filled with the Spirit. Peter preaches. 3,000 come to know him that day. Jewish people Remember, the early church was exclusively Jewish until Peter goes to Cornelius, a Gentile in his household, later on in the book of Acts, proclaims the gospel. 
and the intent and intention of God before the foundation of the world that Messiah would be a light unto the Gentiles and that the true knowledge of God and the salvation of God found in the Savior himself, Jesus, would go to the utter ends of the earth. Remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had told his disciples that they will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon them. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Two thousand years later, friends, you and I, probably not in the Holy Land today, probably not in Jerusalem, Judea, or Samaria, but we are living in the uttermost parts of the earth. It's a real privilege and a blessing to be with you, to be able to share some of the Jewish roots of Pentecost. I encourage you, there's much more from the Feast of Weeks in Acts chapter 2 that we could speak on. I deliver messages in churches, and on a regular basis, I will do a visual sermonic called Christ in the Feast of Tabernacles, where I actually lay out a Passover table. I have a visual sermonic also I do in churches called Christ in the Feast of Tabernacles, where I teach from Acts, from the book of John, chapter 7 and 8, also unpacking the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament, or the Feast of Booths, I should say. And I hope you've been encouraged by this time as we have been unpacking the Jewish roots of Christianity, as we have been doing a biblical survey of God's redemptive history, all the way from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation. We have spoken about the promises of God. We've talked about the gospel in the Old Testament. We have spoken about the covenants as it relates to Israel, the church, and God's redemptive plan, namely the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, the Mosaic covenant. We've talked about the feasts of Israel and as they pertain to Jesus and the Christian life and prophecy. We've talked about Messianic prophecy itself. We've talked about the Trinity in the Old Testament. We've talked about how to get more out of your New Testament study. It's been a real privilege and a blessing to be with you to share this teaching. I hope you've been encouraged and edified in the faith Continue to dig into the Word of God because the book of Romans chapter 10 verse 17 states that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. In Isaiah 55, I leave you with this, that God said about his Word that it will not return void, but it will accomplish all that he desires and designs to accomplish his purposes. Friends, thanks so much for being with me. Until next time, the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Shalom. Thank you, Larry, for helping us understand the Jewish roots of Christianity. Today, we have available the complete Jewish roots of Christianity collection. This special collection includes the book, the complete 16-episode television series, and all of the audio teaching sessions on CD. Order for you and your church. Call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order online, swrc.com. Staff Evangelist James Collins is here now with Dr. Rob Linstead for today's Moment of Prophecy. On February 24, 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine. 
Since that day, people have been asking, where does this fit in Bible prophecy? Joining me to answer that question is Dr. Robert Linstead. Dr. Linstead is an expert on Bible prophecy, and he has led many mission trips to Russia. He's produced a timely teaching DVD titled The Russian Invasion of Ukraine and Bible Prophecy. Dr. Linstead, let's get right to it. Does the Bible speak of Russian aggression in the last days? It sure does. Almost every prophecy buff is familiar with what the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And there's a war there, and it's and often it's called the Russian War, but it talks about the invasion of Russia. And it shows that Russia has a valid interest in the Middle East. As a matter of fact, they come against Israel. And of course, to me, that's amazing, because think about the fact that there was a couple thousand years when Israel wasn't even back in the land. Right, yeah. And the Bible said in the last days, not only are they going to be back in the land, but Russia's going to invade them. And think about the fact that Russia's had an up and down history, and here they are at the end of time, and we're watching the Bible come true exactly as the Bible was written. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Bible speaks about Gog. Gog, I understand, is a man, and I have been asked by several people if Putin is Gog. And I don't know if he is Gog, but I think he's very Gog-like. He's a man of military aggression, of pride, and of greed. What are your thoughts on Putin? Do you think he is Gog? I don't know that he's Gog. He could be. I think Gog is an end-time leader. Mm -hmm. It's the same way we talk about someone, let's say, who's Pharaoh. That doesn't say which pharaoh it is, or president. That doesn't say which president it is. So this man is the end-time leader. Whoever the end-time leader is going to be, when Russia makes its move, that's who Gog is going to be. But I like the way he described it, because he certainly has some characteristics. We just watched the news in the last 24 hours where literally 10,000 people were massacred in one city. Yeah. And that's the beginning. There's probably going to be another 10 or 20 or 25,000 are going to be killed in this city. Why? They just can't get the civilians out of there quick enough to avoid the disaster that's coming. And what does this mean for Russia? It's not good for Russia. I mean, everyone might say, wait a minute, you mean it's not good for the Ukraine? Well, it's certainly not good for the Ukraine, but it's not good for Russia because the Bible has a statement to make. Because the leader, whoever this leader is, this Gog leader, he's going to try something when Russia makes its invasion, and God is going to come with judgment on him. And so I look at Putin, you know what, this is a cold-hearted man. Hmm. How in the world do you blow up a hospital? How do you send a missile in that has written on it for the children? How do you do that? How do you prove that? And so it means that he's a man that's callous to human life, human life, of his people, the Russian people, as well as the Ukrainian people, to him they're of no value. Yeah. And God says at the end time that whoever this leader is, because he'll have a disregard for life, God is going to bring punishment upon him. Who are some of the other nations that will ally with Russia in the Gog-Magog war? When you go to Ezekiel chapter 38, the Bible again is very detailed in that. And so it talks about the fact that there will be Persia, Kushan put. Now, Persia is really easy to identify because old-time Persia, I'm going to use that expression, is modern-day Iran. Mm -hmm. And, boy, it doesn't take much imagination to see how Iran would come against Israel because they hate Israel. Matter of fact, isn't it interesting that right now Russia is encouraging us to leave the sanctions alone 
for Iran so that they can continue their nuclear experiments. Of course, they say it's for peacetime use, but you and I know that it's not for peacetime use. The other one that says, Kushin Put, if you look at those, you'll soon see that Ethiopia and Libya are those two. Another one that's listed is Tagarma, the house of Tagarma to the north. I'm looking at a map as we talk, and directly north is Turkey. Mm-hmm. But then it also mentions this, Gomer and all of its hordes, and that's a tougher one. But again, as I look at a map, and I go back to Genesis chapter 10, these hordes are part of a vast area of modern Eastern Europe. A lot of people think that it could include even Poland. I notice in the news that Finland and Sweden, I don't think they're part of this Gomer, but I think they're borders to that. And so I look for the old Roman Empire and some of the old parts of the Russian Empire. I think he's going to try to reconstruct that. He's going to bring them down, and he's going to promise them a spoil. He's going to promise them something of value. And so I look for some of these modern-day, let's say, Poland, Czechoslovakia, East Germany. These could all be included in that called Gomer and all of its hordes, the expression used in Ezekiel 38 and 39. My guest today has been Dr. Rob Lindstedt, and we've been talking about his DVD, The Russian Invasion of Ukraine and Bible Prophecy. This timely DVD contains over three hours of Bible teaching, along with special television interviews of Dr. Lindstedt by Brannon House. You can get your own copy right now by calling 1-800-652-1144, or you can order online at swrc.com. This is James Collins reminding you that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Our featured resource today is the brand new DVD, The Russian Invasion of Ukraine in Bible Prophecy by Dr. Rob Lindstead. Was the Russian invasion of Ukraine foretold in Bible prophecy? Find out in this dynamic teaching from Rob Lindstead. Over three and a half hours of insight and answers from God's Word about Russia and its place in the end times. Order this powerful DVD, The Russian Invasion of Ukraine in Bible Prophecy, by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order online, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Don't forget about this weekend's Wichita, Kansas Prophecy Conference. 11 speakers over two full days, this Friday and Saturday. Get the complete list of speakers, topics, and schedule when you visit the events section of our website, swrc.com. There, you can register for this special event. Seating is limited, so register today and make plans to join us this Friday and Saturday in Wichita, Kansas. SWRC.com or simply call 1-800-652-1144. Tomorrow, we begin a two-day in-depth look at the Russian invasion of Ukraine in Bible prophecy with Dr. Rob Lindstedt and James Collins. 
Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by simply subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners just like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com.